Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So, welcome to season two of my Research in Action mini-series, where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and, crucially, the implications for teachers in the classroom. And above all, I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Now, for season two, we have nine episodes, and my plan is to release one every Sunday to take us through to the summer holidays. And I tell you what, there are some absolute crackers coming up, including discussions into comparative judgment in mathematics, approximate number systems, executive functions, and of course, making a welcome return from season one, various animals that can count better than me. And we start season two with an absolute bang with the brilliant Paula Ioni. Now, I'll tell you what annoys me about my guests on this podcast. Not only are they far uh, more clever than I am, or (laughs) far cleverer, that was a good start, uh, but also their CVs are absolutely ridiculous. Um, So listen to this one. Paola completed a first degree in mathematics at the University in Rome, uh, Italy, then a PhD in pure mathematics uh, at the University of East Anglia, UEA. She was then appointed for three years as a teaching fellow in the mathematics department at UEA and later became a senior research assistant in the School of Education, still at UEA, until she was appointed to a lectureship in educational research in 2007 and then to a senior lectureship in 2012. She took up her current post as a senior lecturer in mathematics education at Loughborough University in 2016. And I'll tell you what, that's one of the shorter CVs of the guests that are coming up on this series. Flipping heck. Uh, Paula is an expert on summative assessment of mathematics at university level, mathematical reasoning, students' proof production, university students' note-taking, and loads of other things that I found absolutely fascinating and we were lucky enough to cover in this discussion. So without further ado, let's get cracking. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. OK, 
Hey, Paola. So welcome to the podcast. And we Hi. start, as we always do, with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Oh, hi, Greg. This is a really interesting question. So um, I think I, I have to think about this, and I think my favorite number ha- has got to be the square root of two. So the reason, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, there are several reasons about this, which have to do partly with my interest in the history of mathematics and partly with the teaching. So square root of two was uh, one of the first numbers that sent the Greeks running because it's an irrational number. And so uh, this was very problematic for them. But um, the reason why I really like it is because I used the proof of the irrationality of square root of two with my students, uh, not just so that they can convince themselves that square root of two is irrational, but also as a device to understand how they read proofs and how they uh, deal with them. Uh, that proof by contradiction is, the standard proof by contradiction is quite easily, easily manipulated uh, so that I can introduce errors in them and then I can ask the students to find them so I can see how they read these proofs. So one of the things that I do in my teaching, um, at the moment I teach mathematics education for mathematics students, I show them a proof that square root of four is irrational. And obviously this is uh, <laughs> modeled on the proof that square root of two is irrational and, and then we have conversations about how we read proofs and so on. So it's a number that keeps cropping up in my in my teaching and in my kind of very um, uh, lay person interest in history of mathematics, so I'm going to have to go for that. <laughs> fantastic! That's a that's a fantastic choice. And second question: uh, What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, I didn't really understand what mathematics was until I was at university. So I did my first degree at the university in Rome, La Sapienza. Uh, I remember being completely flabbergasted by algebra. So uh, as I progressed in my in my degree, I found that there was something incredibly powerful in being able to use abstract structures to um, describe more concrete objects. So this idea that there are lots of um, objects that all together, they all fulfill the same property. So they're all a ring, they're all a, a group, or they're all um, kind of a, a variety. That's, that was very, very powerful to me. So this has been my um, kind of my love from the first year of university. And this is what I've then done for my doctorate um, when, I, when I graduated. So it's this kind of descriptive power of using more and more general structures to explain to us how other uh, mathematical objects work and what other properties. Fantastic. Superb. And, and final speed dating question, Paola. Mm-hmm. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education? Oh, uh, so there was a point in my life uh, where, where I uh, was researching opening a catering business. So um, I really was quite serious about ditching everything that had to do with academia and uh, just opening a catering uh, a business to cater for um, a private events. Uh, as you can see, this did not happen, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's really something that um, that attracts me, this idea of um, gathering people around food. Um, it's something that has always attracted me, and I love cooking, and I love spending time in the kitchen. So it was easier when my kids were at home and were young. Now it's just me <laughs> and my partner, it's not very great to cook <laughs> batches and batches of biscuits all the time. But... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, that sounds good to me. Well, fantastic. Well, so the catering business uh, didn't work. Didn't uh, you didn't go down that route? So why don't you tell us then about your career to date, Paul? Yeah, if that's so, right. Where did it start for you, and then how did you end up where you are now? Uh, so where did I start? I started with mathematics. So I, for some reason, which probably has got to do with the very influential lecturer I had in my first year of mathematics at university. Uh, I decided that what I wanted to do was uh, to research pure mathematics, um, which was a very foolish thing to decide at the age of 19. Um, so, but this, uh, so I finished my first degree, and in the last year of my first degree, I was offered to come to the UK with the Erasmus scheme, and this was the first uh, for my university. It was the first um, group of people living with Erasmus, uh, and then I came to the UK, and this is how I came to the UK. Uh, then I finished my first degree, raised money with the Italian government to do a, a PhD abroad, so I did my PhD. So, and so my grand plan in life was to do my PhD, to do a series of postdocs and become a mathematics researcher. What happened instead is that by the end of my PhD, I was married and I had two children under three. So uh, that <laughs> kind of put this a little bit on hold. Uh, my then husband was supportive of an academic career, but obviously having a person in the family with a steady permanent job was not conducive to up uproot the family and go and follow my one-year postdoc here, one-year postdoc there. So this is where the catering business came in. <laughs> so at that, <laughs> at that point, I thought, well, I cannot follow the research mathematician career because I just don't have the... Um, um, I don't have the opportunity, I don't, and mostly was also I didn't want to make the sacrifices in terms of family that would imply me not being there. So, um, so then I didn't do very much for a couple of years. I looked after kids, and then I, I used to translate abstracts for Elsevier, which was quite a weird thing. So somebody in the Elsevier office where I lived uh, thought, thought that I could speak uh, very many languages, which I couldn't. And so... Uh, I think that they decided they decided that um, I was going to do this, and I learned about uh, sewage in Paris, for example. That's the kind of stuff I was doing. Uh, so at that point, I was really thinking what I could do. So I was thinking about becoming a secondary school teacher of mathematics, which is another thing that never took off. But somehow, one day, my PhD supervisor got in touch and said to me. Look, we always need associate tutors that teach mathematics. Why don't you come back and do a bit of teaching? Which I did. So I went back to university and I worked um, contract uh, teaching pure mathematics, logic, statistics, these kind of things. And that's uh, where it all happened. So I met somebody in the same institution who just finished their PhD and was researching mathematics education. I didn't even know mathematics education existed at that point. So she reached out to me and asked me whether I wanted to do a project together. This was the year 2000, and the rest is history. I changed completely my research direction. I uh, became a social scientist. I started um, doing projects in mathematics education, and I now I'm here now. So this is to say that at 19, you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great story, that power. Um, 
Before we dive into your uh, your current areas of research and what we're going to talk about today, a question I always ask my guests at this point is to describe a favourite failure. So I wonder if there's a moment perhaps in your research or your professional career just in general that, that didn't go according to plan and, and what did you learn from the experience? Um, well, I think that there are two different things. So things that didn't go according to plan in my career, uh, I just described, I thought that it's really very difficult to know where you will be in 10 years' time. Mm. Um, this is, uh, I mean, no matter how prepared you are and how motivated you are, I think that things will happen, or at least for some people, things happen. And so I've stopped uh, making um, that long-term plans career-wise, uh, or, or maybe because I get interested in things and, and then I do other things. But research-wise, I think that um, one of the things that What's really interesting, so I I did one project when I was at the beginning of my academic career, so I was learning the ropes, basically. And I was hired as a research associate on a project which uh, involved um, year one students, so like very, very, very young students. Um, the, the old process was not quite a failure. It was very interesting and it was a very good uh, learning curve to me. but. What I consider really interesting for me is that in some way that project taught me that that was not the part of mathematics education that I was good at. So dealing with very, very young children um, was very interesting and it is obviously incredibly important, but mm. somehow this was not what where my strengths were, if I can put it like this. All sorts of things became difficult in the project. So I had this idea that you could sit a four and a half years old down and ask them about mathematics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I was very young and I was just starting at the time. So this is my, my excuse for it. But I somehow understood that the things I'm interested in mathematics education are others. So after that, um, I mean, we did write a couple of publications out of the project. Uh, but after that, I think that that taught me what um, what is that? What is my niche, if you like, and what I'm really interested in, what I think I can make a contribution, notwithstanding that obviously it's incredibly important that um, mathematics education is looked at throughout the, the age span, because obviously it's very important how children learn mathematics. It's just that for me, um, that didn't quite work. <laughs> That's a, it's, it's a very interesting one, that. Um, I, I, my area of, well, so-called expertise is, is with with secondary school students, 11 to, to 18. Mm-hmm. And I'm always very interested to speak to teachers of, of primary age students, but particularly early years teachers. Because I, I've, I've, as you as you described there, the, the, there's challenges, particularly in terms of research, but also just challenges in terms of teaching them. I, I, it just seems to be, to, to me anyway, to be a whole different ball game. And I, there seems to be a lot of similarities between how I would perhaps teach year seven and year eight students compared to sixth form students, year 12 and 13. But I would be completely out of my depth, I think, trying to teach four-year-olds and five-year-olds. It, it just seems to be, yeah, it seems to be completely different, doesn't it, Power? Exactly. I mean, I, I have stood uh, in classes of 160 electronical engineers uh, to teach them some mathematics. And in, in this class, there were, I think, four females, one being me. Uh, and I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, but yes. sitting in this class with this little um, kind of with these children, I, I just found that the teacher was doing an amazing job that I could never be 
able to replicate in any shape or form, if you like. The things that you need to think about are quite different, and the way in which you need to relate to the pupils, I think, are quite different. I mean, I remember one Monday morning um, when I arrived to take observations of the lesson, that uh, the teacher had a kind of a row of students in front of her, all kind of with a little bit of tears in their eyes, and one was saying that they fell, and the other one was saying that they left the lunch at home, and the other one was saying that they were tired. <laughs> and I was thinking, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking she's a saint. <laughs> having said that, yes. I mean, as I said, um, having said that, it's incredibly important that um, these studies are done, and then we we understand how young children. Uh, that mathematics is important for the stage in which they are, but it's also important for the future learning of mathematics, if you like. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, well, Paolo, what, what are we going to talk to? What are we going to talk about today? What, what's your chosen area of research and, and what first attracted you to it? Okay, so uh, my generally, I think when I need to talk about what is my research, I say that um, my general interest is the teaching and learning of mathematics at university level. The reason why I, I got there is because, uh, I guess this is because in some way that's the experience I have. So I have been a mathematics student, I've studied advanced mathematics, I've taught mathematics at university, so I guess this is the world I know, okay? Um, in within the teaching and learning in, of uh, mathematics at university level, I guess I have three areas of interest. The first area of interest is uh, mathematical reasoning. So how do pupils and students think about mathematics? So if I ask a student, can you write a proof of this statement, what do they do? How do they write it? What do they think about this? How do they reason about mathematics? And this is not just to do with proofs, but it's got to do with uh, handling mathematical examples, using mathematical examples in a generic way to understand proof patterns and all this kind of stuff. And this really was my first love. So when I went into mathematics education, this is what attracted me first. And this is probably because I come from a pure mathematics background, so I had experienced um, the proof writing and, and, and learning this kind of mathematics. The second area of interest I have, which I think is probably the one I'm going to talk about today a bit more in detail, is uh, assessment of mathematics at university level. Uh, the reason why I got into this area is because the first thing I noticed when I arrived in the UK, originally I'm from Italy, is that assessment patterns both in school and in university are very different from what they are uh, in Italy but elsewhere. And so I started asking myself uh, why this is the case and what are the outcomes of this. This was the first question that I thought, you know, the, the famous um, kind of standing in the shower question and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> to know <laughs> this kind of question. Um, from there, I started thinking about um, assessment, not so much in the sense of how reliable is this assessment method or what psychometrics I can do and so on, but more in the sense of what impact does this assessment have on student engagement. And this is a, one of the big questions I, I try to address with my um, in my study, and if you want, I can talk about this a bit later. Mm. Um, the third area that is very, very out of the press for me, which I never thought about this, and it's originated from a, from a conversation in a conference with two colleagues of mine, is to investigate uh, the transition from school into university mathematics. 
Yes. So um, this is really a big thing. Um, learn, learn societies are wondering why students come into university and struggle. The fact that students come into university and struggle under many points of view is well documented. But there have been two facets of this research that interest me. So the first one is that we have a lot of documentation about uh, students' cognitive difficulties. They come here, they find writing proof difficult because they find the rigorous language difficult. Or they come to university and they find abstract thinking difficult because they are not used to this, and so on. Um, there are a little bit of uh, epistemological difficulties as well. So students often come and tell us that they were really good at mathematics, selected a lot because they were very good at doing calculations. Now mm. they need to learn that calculation is one part of mathematics, but not the all of it. And so this is a little bit of a problem of what represents knowledge in mathematics, if you like. But the things which know not very much, which haven't really been looked very much by research, are more sociocultural and affective aspects. So students come here to university, arrive to university, and, and find a completely different surrounding. They go from very small level classes where they are very successful into a big lecture room where they are one of the 200 maybe. What impact does this have on the learning of mathematics? And so I got really quite interested in, in, in this and I am currently doing a project with some colleagues in Italy and some colleagues in Switzerland about this. The other aspect which hasn't really been looked a lot about transition is the idea that we can have a organized way of thinking about it. So we call this a theoretical framework. Um, somebody has suggested that um, the transition from school to university mathematics is a little bit like a rite of passage. I don't love this idea because it allows me to talk about two of my favorite films ever, which is Richard the Godfather and Dirty Dancing, because they're both films about <laughs> because they're both films about rites of passage. Right. So what is a rite of passage? Rites of passage in anthropology are, are defined like uh, pivotal ceremonies where an individual goes from one status to another. One uh, typical example is childbirth. So you go from being a person to being a mother, if you like. Mm. Uh, if we look at university, uh, joining university as a rite of passage, we can describe this passage as going from a school setting, so a school mathematics, into a different social, cultural, and kind of learning setting. If the power of this framework is that if I look at transition as a rite of passage, then the crisis which is caused by the transition is something which is necessary for the transition to be successful, is not something that needs to be avoided. So what is the outcome of this? The outcome of this is that if I think about supporting my students that come into university, then I am much better off understanding where the problems are and uh, scaffold them so that they can overcome this problem rather than removing the problems. You see what I mean? And, mm. I, and I find this really, really powerful because I see these problems emerging all the time. I, I have first year students whom I teach and I see them, I see them struggling with um, learning, I see them struggling with being away from home and having kind of reactions akin to the fact to what we called the small fish in a big pond, suddenly they're not the best in, in their smaller level class, suddenly they're one of the students. So this framework tells us that instead of making universities teaching look 
a lot more like A-level teaching, we need to understand where the troubles are and scaffold the students to overcome the trouble so that they can transition into the new setting, if you like, of a much more independent student and somebody who is ready to tackle what university mathematics is. And I found that this really powerful. So this is something I've just started at the moment to talk about, and I'm really, really interested in to watch this space. <laughs> oh, this, this sounds fascinating, Paolo. Let me just ask you just a couple of questions on this, if, if that's okay, because I'm, I'm very interested in this. Uh, we'll have a lot of teachers listening to this mm -hmm. podcast who will be teaching A-level students uh, mathematics and also further maths. Uh, what, what are some of the, the, the kind of practical things that, that A-level teachers could perhaps do to help prepare their students more for this transition? Or, or is, is the onus more on, on university lecturers? Well, well where are the, well, what, what's your kind of take? Well, where does the emphasis need to, need to be to help support these students? This is really difficult to say. So um, before I say anything about schools, I just want to put a disclaimer here that I, I know a little bit obviously about schools, but not this is not my area of interest. Sure. But the problem I, I see with um, trying to encourage uh, teachers to do significantly different things in A-levels is that they need to prepare the students to fit A-levels, right? Yes. So um, it's all well and good to me turning up and saying to, to a level class, oh, this is fantastic. We're going to do group theory today and we're going to learn what are these abstract things if this is not what they need to do. Right, you see what I mean? So the thing that I think it would help a little bit more would be to try to encourage uh, revision strategies uh, for when they prepare, which are a little bit more conducive to, we call it conceptual understanding, but thinking about the mathematics. I've seen this with students, I've seen this with my own children when they were doing their levels. Um, a lot of it is past papers. And mm. I see this with the students when they come to university. A lot of this is past papers. So they ask us for the past exam papers and the exam papers. And this is, if there could be a bit less of this and a bit more of talking, for example, I think it would prepare students a little bit better, notwithstanding that the elaborate paper is what they need to sit in order to proceed. So obviously they need to be prepared to sit that as well. So this is one, one of the things that I think it would be really important, this idea of stimulating mathematical conversation also in view of preparing for an exam. I think it would be That's important. Interesting. So and I would That's, want uh, sorry, go. And I would want to say I would like to see things like uh, proof a little bit more inserted in the curriculum, but again it's difficult because that's not what is assessed. Yeah, that's tr That's tricky. That that that's really interesting. Uh, the 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 other thing I was I was going to ask Paul that just just related to this is I'm thinking about my uh, my own experience here, and I, I did a, I did an economics degree, um, having done maths and further maths, and I found the um the the maths in terms of the economics degree was was really nice. It was very similar to, to a lot of the further maths that I'd done. There was very few, there was a few proofs in there, but there was nothing overly complex. There was calculus in there, but it was all absolutely fine. Um, is a lot of this research that you're talking about, that you're interested in, is this focus kind of, the majority of the focus being on on, on mathematics degrees? And do you find any differences when, when students take degrees that have a mathematics component in them, like like economics or psychology or, or some of the sciences? Um, are, are there significant differences there or is that not something you've looked at? Um, 
I haven't looked at this uh, systematically, but from my experience, of, for example, of teaching engineering students, who mm. you know, students who have a significant component of mathematics in their degree, but they are not mathematicians. In that case, the problem arises from um, questioning why they are studying this mathematics. Okay, mm. and this is another big, big, big area of interest which I only have marginally uh, worked in, um, and it's a big area of research. So, how to teach mathematics? We call it uh, like in our in our language, this is called to non-specialists. These are students mm. who have a lot of mathematics in their degrees, but they're not mathematicians. The problems that arise there are different. So, obviously, an engineering student who's taking my class is not interested in knowing. Um, the proof of the central limit theorem, right? <laughs> that's not why. That's not why they are there. They are more interested in how to become very proficient in learning how to yes. use this tool in the best way that they can for the problems to solve. So it's a it's if you like it's a completely area of different area of research for psychologists, for example. I imagine that for them the big thing is to learn how to use statistics. Uh, more than mathematics, in fact, and uh, there is quite a lot of uh, kind of conversations at the moment about uh, statistical tools psychologists and how to use them and how to do evaluations and so on. But again, that's a different. It's mathematics seen as a tool rather than mathematics seen as my object of study, right? That's interesting. That's interesting. And my my only other thought I had um, on this was. Um, what, what's often a really useful thing I find for secondary school teachers to do is to is to go into primary school and um, not necessarily, well, when I first started teaching, the message was very much secondary school teachers go into primary school to kind of help support the primary school teachers how to teach mathematics. But what's been nice is over the last few years, it's certainly become much more apparent that, that many of us secondary school teachers can learn far more from our primary colleagues than they could ever learn from us. And I, I always learn so much whenever I'm lucky enough to visit primary schools and observe the teaching that goes on. I wonder, is there, um, is there any kind of, uh, kind of push for university lecturers to spend time in, in secondary schools working with A-level teachers or just watching A-level teachers just, just to see and remind themselves of the kind of teaching that happens there, the kind of questioning and so on, just, just to ease that transition. Is, is that something that's common in universities for, for um, the lecturers to spend time in, in, in schools and colleges at all? Um, not to my knowledge. So, um, university uh, work with school usually are uh, mostly in to try to explain to students, to potential students, to students who are taking a level classes, what mathematics may be like once they come mm. to university, or why mathematics is, it can be something interesting to study, if you like. So, and there, are, and there are very, very many initiatives uh, for this in many universities, and there are uh, kind of um, centers that, that do this. I don't really know of um, university lecturers going to observe um, A-level classes. And this is probably maybe a good idea so that the people can learn uh, what it was done um, in the year before. Um, especially because mathematics lecturers um, can be, uh, mathematics is one of the subjects that attracts uh, lecturers from all parts of the world for, for various reasons. And so sometimes uh, some of us are here teaching uh, university students, but they have never gone through the same system that the students have gone through. Yes. 
So, and so it would be interesting. A lot of my colleagues, in all fairness, they try to kind of understand how our levels work, and obviously we all have conversations about what the students do and what they don't do. Uh, so what's part of the syllabus and what they are supposed to be knowing when they come here and so on. But there is no really, uh, I don't think that there is really much observing how an A-level class would be run, if you like. Mm, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's just one of those things. I, I I can only talk, as I say, from my own experience. But that that transition from primary to secondary is is potentially a, a really troublesome one. And I've certainly found that the teachers spending time in both settings can really can really ease that transition. So yeah, an interesting one. And um, right, Paolo. Well, if it's all right with you, can can we move on to assessment now? Um, if that's all right, because you, you you've hooked me in here when, whenever you said that the the when you first came across from Italy, you you really noticed that the UK seemed to do things very differently in terms of assessment in university than, than Italy and also anywhere else. What what are some of those key differences? Uh, so this is really interesting. Um, when I came here and I started understanding how the university system works and how school system works when then my kids went to school, I very, very quickly realized that there is no opportunity for what I call oral performance assessment in school or in university. So in my school experience as a child, it was completely standard that three times during a term, you would be called at the board for each subject and you would be asked questions, okay? And this starts from the beginning of school and ends with the end of uh, university. So oral assessment is something which is very much part of a student learning experience. Um, when I talk oh, about- Oh, sorry, Paola, you, you've, you've, you've interested me there. I, I was not yeah. aware of that at all. Can, can you just describe kind of practically how that works? Is that, um, do the students know what when yeah. their time is that they're gonna come up? Do, do they know what they're gonna be asked about? And, and are other students watching at the same time? Well, what, what does it look like, this oral assessment? Uh, so, okay, so in school, um, is, um, the students usually don't know uh, when they'll be called up. The uh, topic is whatever has been covered up to the moment in which they're called up, and it's something that happens in front of the classroom. Wow. So, um, and this is also not, um, Q&A, if you like. So um, I, know, I understand that in school sometimes, maybe not for mathematics, but for other subjects, students prepare a presentation and then they give a presentation and then they have some questions from the teachers or from the, or from the other students. But this is not it. So this is not what I'm talking about. It's really like um, an assessment of what has been gone up to the point where you're called. This reflects also with universities. So in the university in Italy, you um, all the uh, modules that you will have to, to sit will have an oral assessment component, and most of them will have a written part. So for most of the modules, especially in the first year, you will have a written uh, exam. If you reach a certain amount of marks, you will then go to an oral exam. And then the final mark will be the combination of the written exam and the oral exam. Um, so I was really surprised that this didn't happen. And it's not just Italy. Um, many par uh, many uh, parts in, in Europe uh, do exams of this sort uh, at university. So uh, can I? 
I'm, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, Paula. I'm just <laughs> I find this absolutely fascinating. Could I just uh, just go back to this this school setting? I, I can kind of imagine it as like a, an 18 or 19 or 20 year old student be, having the, you know having the kind of confidence and maturity to to answer questions and so on like this. But I'm I'm, I'm really finding it interesting for for these younger students in in the school setting. I wonder if you could just. Can, can you give me an idea of, of perhaps some of the, the types of questions that the, the teacher would be asking? Because I know you've said it's not kind of this question and answer. What, what, what would it be? What, what kind of things would they, they ask these students? Well, for example, if, if you were uh, called for mathematics, they will give you a mathematics problem to solve at the board. And then whilst you are solving the mathematics problem at the board, they will ask you questions. So you do something ah. and they will ask you, oh, why did you do that? For example. That's interesting. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, in in the, the school um, I last taught in, I did a lot of the preparation for the university interviews um, ah, with our okay. A-level students. And the, it was really interesting. It's obviously as part of a lot of university interviews, you often get that, uh, particularly for, for Oxford, Cambridge and, and some of the, the, the other Russell Group universities. Students will often have to... Um, do a proof but also talk through the proof and, and and reason and so on and the first time i would do these interviews with students that they, they didn't they didn't know what was going on because they weren't used to doing this at all they were used to whenever they did maths it was a very solitary experience they would sit there themselves working through something on paper and hand in the paper and or check their answer and so on it was a really new experience for students having to verbalize their thinking and reasoning this is fascinating that this happens in a much earlier age in in other countries i wasn't aware of this at all well yes i mean the idea is that you get used to it so this is part mm. of what your school looks like right so it's not uh, strange at all anymore that is just what your school assessment looks like you'll have some written tests you'll have some oral tests and then at the end of the day some mark will be taught i don't know um but, but this that's Oh, sorry, Paula. The only other thing I was going to ask before I, I, I shut up and let you carry on, just before I forget to ask, is um, I wonder if you, if you know if, if there's a strong correlation between how well students do orally and how well they do on, on the written exam. Does it tend to be that the, the, the kids are kind of good at both or, or good at neither? Or do you often see differences with, with um, students? I, I would not be able to tell you any research-informed answer to this question because I don't really know. Uh, the only thing that I can uh, propose is that it is obvious to me by some of the research that I have done that there are people that perform better in oral assessment and, that, and there are people that perform better in written assessment. So there is mm. both kinds, if you like. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Sorry, Paul, you, you keep going. You keep telling me about this research because this has blown my mind, this. I find this fascinating. <laughs> yes. So, so this was the first very, very first question that came to my mind. I was talking to a colleague of mine and we said, oh, that's really cool. Let's do something about it. Um, so the second thing that we did, we tried to understand how assessment really works in universities in the UK. And so we did a survey, which we then repeated, in fact, last year, because it's 10 years since we did it. And we tried to understand what is the assessment of mathematics at university level, what does it look like? And as it turns out, um, as we knew, is uh, all closed book exams, right? So mm. timed exams without access to any material. So we did, um, in all fairness, we suspected that this would be the case, but we, we wanted to go into and have a look. Um, 
when we did the survey last year, this is pre-COVID because things may have changed now. We don't quite yet know. Uh, the situation wasn't much different, so it's mostly written exams. Uh, most universities now that have a project uh, in the last year uh, as kind of a largest component of the last year marks, and there are some items of coursework that are mostly found in uh, programming modules or in the statistics modules, but not so much, for example, in pure mathematics. If you look at pure mathematics, the uh, picture you get is that is one after the, uh, the next. Um, cross-book exam. So then we did, uh, we thought this very interesting. If you look at the literature that tries to analyze the kind of mathematical skills which are assessed by cross-book questions, of which there is quite a lot, and actually um, worldwide, not, not just in the UK, uh, the picture that emerges is that the kind of skills that are tested are mostly um, Re replication skills, so they're mostly questions that ask students to do something that they have seen before or something which is an application of a routine that they have seen before, mm. which is which I think is troubling. So one uh, study that I think was carried out in Ireland, if I remember correctly now, uh, found out that you can get a first uh, um, by um, just being able to replicate routines that you have seen. Now, wow. I'm not sure that this is what I would like my students to do. I mean, I'm not expecting that all my students will become research mathematicians at all. Uh, in fact, very few will. But I think we should change them a little bit if we don't show them uh, the other aspects of mathematics, which is the more creative aspect and the more kind of conceptual aspect. So anyway, having a look at all these things, we did a couple of studies, uh, one with my colleague, one I've done on my own with some uh, mathematicians at um, the London School of Economics, where we trialed uh, oral assessment with students. Um, what we found is that uh, the, the attitude towards studying mathematics changes. And this is what really got me, and this is what I found really surprising when I started these studies, how strong is the link between what the students understand they need to do to be successful and what they actually do. So I'll give an example very quickly. If I tell my students that the only thing they need to do to, to solve this multiple choice question uh, quiz is to memorize uh, this page, that page, and that page, this is mm. what students will do. Okay? Yes. The other way around is much more difficult. So just telling the students, look, you really need to understand to do this, doesn't necessarily um, originate in the students engaging in a more, at a more conceptual level with the material. Part of my research has been to try to understand what are the conditions of students engaging them more conceptually. And it turns out that um, in the two studies in the UK that I've done, um, students, uh, the students who could understand how neural assessment worked, could see that it required a lot more thinking than the standard papers, and engaged in revisions that was more than doing past papers. So they engaged into meeting their friends and asking each other questions, asking each other proofs of applications of mathematical concepts. So this, this dialogic, kind of revision rather than what you were saying before. They isolated you and your paper and you do mm. your paper and then you mark it. 
but some of the literature tells us that this is actually very much conducive to more to more conceptual understanding. So this is where I got interested. The last bit of this research that I'm doing, which is also very interesting, is that we are now trying to run the same project in a country where oral assessment is the norm. So the idea after I did the two studies with the UK students was that maybe this is the reaction because for them this is completely new because they've never seen this mm. before and they don't know how it works and so they get a bit over scary. I don't know how to, how to describe yes. this. Um, <laughs> and so this is the way they react. So at the moment I'm working with a colleague of mine in the Czech Republic where um, also for them, like in Italy, oral assessment is the norm of working in school and in university to see whether we observe the same uh, behavior. So whether the students also think that in order to be successful for an oral exam, you need to really concept, understand the mathematics properly. So we'll see what happens. Preliminary results seem to think, seem to show us that yes, they, they also react in this way and so they also have revision strategies which are a bit more conducive to conceptual understanding, but we haven't finished analyzing the data. So. This is really this is really interesting. So a, a couple of questions spring to mind here. Um, so the first is in terms of the um, the written assessments that happen in the UK and also in Italy and, and other countries are, are they pretty similar, Paola? Obviously, the oral, oral assessment is non-existent in the UK. Are, are the written assessments do they do they tend to be quite similar, or are, or are there any differences there? No, they are pretty similar. I mean, I would say. Um, the questions may be a little bit more on the application side in the in maybe in the Italian papers because then you have the oral assessment. But I, I don't I don't see them being significantly different. But from um, some data that we are collecting for this study, I mentioned later that uh, where we are also talking to university lecturers in the Czech Republic, the message we are getting from them is that they are happy to have a written paper which is mostly computational because they can test the conceptual understanding in the oral exam. Mm. So, but, so there is in some way a division in, in the lecturer's mind that this piece of assessment is going to give me this information about what the students know and this other piece of assessment is going to give me this other information about what the students know. Very interestingly, I was talking to a colleague of mine in um, at the university in Pisa in Rome and when COVID uh, happened in March last year, uh, whilst all universities in the UK resorted to some sort of um, written exam remotely, which is what mm. we've all done with slightly different constraints and in slightly different ways. In the universities in Italy, all the universities and most universities have resorted to only have oral exams, which uh -huh. they have had online. So this is also quite interesting because the idea was that there was no confidence that no confidence that the oral the, the written assessment taken in that in that context could tell you anything. So it's, it's really quite really interesting. interesting. I don't agree with this, okay? I'll say it. <laughs> I'll say I, I put this forward immediately. I think that the university did a really good job with the assessment um, in the conditions in which we were, and there has been a lot of um, work done in mathematics uh, towards trying to change the questions that we ask for the, for the written exam, because obviously you cannot ask the same question that you would ask in a two hours uh, 
no access yes. to material exam. So I don't necessarily agree with that, but this is interesting to know how um, some different countries have reacted differently to the pandemic. That's very, that's very interesting. That's fascinating. Um, the, the, the one thing I really wanted to ask you about this, Paula, that, that springs to mind is that um, a long-running discussion that we have on this podcast over the last well, five years that, that I've been doing this now is the relationship between conceptual understanding and either procedural fluency or procedural understanding or whatever you, whatever you label it as. Um, and I just wonder whether having these oral assessments, which are in there to help develop conceptual understanding or assess conceptual understanding, whether you believe that they then also have a benefit to the students in terms of their procedural fluency, in terms of their performance on, on the written exam. Because if, if they do, and my instinct is that they, they probably would do, I wonder if it's the case that UK teachers listening to this, A-level teachers, but also teachers of younger students, if this is something that they could build into their own practice, obviously not high stakes, just uh, as just like a, just something that we do in maths, because not only is it going to be a different experience for the students, not only is it going to prepare them better for university life, but it may also help them develop and understand mathematics better so that they perform better on the high stakes summative assessments like GCSE and A-level. Uh, does that make sense? And would you agree with any of that? Uh, yeah, I will agree with this uh, very much. I mean, we, the problem I have with uh, kind of talking too much about this uh, separation between uh, procedural understanding and conceptual understanding is that I think that what I would actually probably call mathematics fluency, um, being able to apply the right procedure at the right moment, I think it's also a very important skill to have. So mm. I, would, I don't think, I don't see this as either or, okay? Yes. But I do think that having been able to understand the reasons why things happen also helps you deploying strat algorithms better because you know when you need to you need to use them, you are exactly sure of what you need to do at the right moment where you are applying a procedure and so on. So I would have thought that it would be very it would be very, very useful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just wondering, I know obviously that the, the focus of your work has been very much on university students, but I just wonder if you've got if we've got teachers listening here who are quite excited to to try out some of these these oral assessments, as I say, not high stakes at all, just to try them out in the classroom. Would you have any advice or any any tips about how how to run them, what to say to the students, how to help them prepare, good questions to ask, and anything that springs to mind from your experience that, that perhaps teachers could use when they try this out in the classroom? Well, there are, there are more or less infinite ways to run an oral assessment um, <laughs> from, um, um, from what I experience as a student. Basically, you have a year-long teaching and you sit in front of your lecturer who is going to ask you some random questions anyway. Uh, which is not great, I say this immediately. So, for example, something that we tried out in uh, the first study I did, so what we did then, we gave the students four exercises to solve beforehand. And mm -hmm. so the students could go away, look up the solutions somewhere if you want to do, do them themselves. And then when they came to the oral assessment, we picked one of the four ex exercises, and we asked students have done this exercise and so the students would start writing and then we would ask them questions. So when the students was doing something, we would ask, oh, you have applied this formula. Why have you applied this formula? So mm. starting from a point where the students is confident that they know something, okay, 
because they have done the exercise and they will have done yes. the home and so they will have prepared. So especially for students who are not familiar with this uh, with this format and then asking what we call con contingent questions. So asking the students why they're doing what they're doing. So why are you applying this, this uh, formula? Why are you doing this passage? What does this refer to? Relating it to the parts of the mathematics curriculum that underpin the solution of that example. I think that that's something that could be done not too difficultly and also could be not too scary for the students who have never experienced mm. this assessment because the students will start with thinking, I have done this exercise, I know what I'm writing, <laughs> right? Yes, that, that, sounds, that sounds really good. I like that idea of the students having already kind of almost had a bit of success with, with working through the exercise, feeling confident about that, and then digging deeper into it in, in the oral exercise. Um, the other thing that springs to mind here, Paula, um, I'm a little bit obsessed with um, research into worked examples in mathematics. It's something I've been really interested in over the last kind of two to three years. And, and one thing that really seems to come out from that is, is the importance of self-explanation prompts. So the idea of instead of students just kind of watching you at the board, you know, go through a worked example, pausing and saying, well, why did I do that? Or why did yeah. I choose to, where, where did this number seven come from? What, what mistake have I made on this line? All these prompts that hopefully get students thinking a bit deeper about the problem, but also enable them to generalize and transfer that solution to, to, to different problems and so on. And is, is there a similarity here? Is, is it a case that these the, the, the good questions that we ask during these oral assessments are, are kind of like the, the, the good questions that we'd ask as, as self-explanation prompts during a worked example, or is this something a bit different? Um, I'm not sure that it's very different from what you were describing. Um, there is also another component to it. So when we did the first uh, study and we used this model of oral assessment, uh, the students came prepared and they had this uh, um, exercises, this was a module on graph theory, um, and it was five assessors that were doing this, myself, my colleague, and three PhD students. And we were asking these questions. They came mostly from our understanding of the mathematics and our understanding of what the students had done. But what we've got back from the students that we were not expecting at all is that they really liked the immediate feedback that you get in the context of an oral assessment. This mm. was not an end of module assessment. So it's not, that's it, I'm finished the teacher, this is now your assessment. This was something that we did as a tiny component of coursework, halfway through a module. Yes. And the students really loved this idea that they could get this immediate feedback and they could have conversation with the lecturer that was assessing them. So the students would do something, I would say, oh, are you sure that that's the case? And I would look at it and would say, well, uh, maybe not. And then if they couldn't move, I could say to them, oh, have you thought about doing that? You see, this kind of dialogic conversation helps students to push forward, to get along, but it also helps them to understand what they're doing that is not quite right. And this, they found this really, really beneficial when we asked them about the whole experience. So this is another component that can be kept into mind. That's really interesting. And I guess as well that if, 
a lot of this will come down to classroom culture because you don't want a student you could imagine some students who lack confidence and being nervous who would who would really not like to be kind of put on the spot with these questions but but if this becomes normal and part of the routine i guess it's also not just the student who's answering the questions uh, during the oral assessment who benefits but also the other students in the class who get to listen and perhaps be thinking about how they would answer the questions and so on it, it feels to me that there's there's lots of benefits to this to, to to basically everybody who's in the room if that makes sense absolutely there is one more component so when I done this at university, I used to do um, oral assessment for a problem solving module. I used to do oral assessment for some linear algebra. And every now and then you would find a student that would contact me beforehand and say, oh, I'm really worried. I need to ask when I do this at university level, this is done on a one-to-one. -one. There is no other students in the room, mm. okay? And it's recorded for moderation purposes. So some students would contact me beforehand and say, oh, I'm really worried, I'm really not very good at speaking in public and so on. And, and some of the conversation that would start where I would ask them, you are in the third year, you are going to have job interviews next year. How are you going to be able mm. to deal with those? Yes. So it's, I understand that it's, it's difficult to speak in public. And I, when I started doing the job that I do, I was terrified. I mean, I'm, I'm really not joking here. I was terrified of lecturing, and I was. Yes. I, and I was terrified of speaking at conferences. Mm. But it's something that somehow we need to teach the students how to overcome, because they will have to speak. I mean, just imagine somebody wants to go into teaching, and they yes. think that they're terrified of speaking in public. Yes, yes, yes. So it's something that we should help the students to overcome and obviously this is something also with um, kind of getting the experience of this teaching in public. So uh, in some of the studies I've done where there has been a neural assessment, we have always introduced at some point during the uh, module a mock so that the students could experience this detached from an assessment. Um, mm -hmm. Like they were not given marks, the mock would be only um, formative. but. Um, they found that very helpful because then they did it once and some of the students told us, Do you know, we've never done this before, we were terrified, but actually we've done it now and it's okay. <laughs> That's interesting. And can you just clarify as well, Paolo, when, um, when, when in Italy and other countries, when this is done with younger students, um, are, are the other classmates uh, in, in the room there or yeah. is that one-to-one, is that -one, the oral assessment? No, no, that's done uh, in front of your class. Yes, that's yeah. interesting. That's interesting. Well, that is, I found that absolutely fascinating, Paolo. Was there anything else about your particular area of research that, that you wanted to, to, just to share with us before we move on to your reflections? Um, I think that the only thing that I would encourage anybody that thinks about assessment is to think a little bit less about uh, all the things that we call reliability and validity and all this kind of stuff and all how can I be sure that, uh, you know, if three people at three come sides of the word mark is this all the same. I think a little bit more about what are the message regarding mathematics and what is important in mathematics that is conveyed to the student who sees this assessment. And I think this is really important. So what are we telling our students that mathematics is when we set certain kind of assessments? That's, yeah, that's interesting. Very, very important point. I like that. Uh, well, Paolo, if it's all right with you, we're going to move on to just two reflections before I hand over to you for your big three. So the first reflection is, what's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? 
Um, to be honest with you, I never really thought about assessment very much uh, before I started doing research about it. Um, I thought, yes, of course, we need to assess students because at some point we need to have the, like this um, certification that they've done something. But it really never came into my thinking of how students learn. So after when I started doing research and assessment, I always kind of thought about student learning and um, assessment as two things that happened in two different worlds. And actually, mm. this is really not the case. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes I describe assessment as the big elephant in the room. We do all yeah. these uh, wonderful studies with students. We do this task and that task and that task, and then we do all these things. And we never take into consideration how much of the work and the approach that the students take is regulated and influenced by what they think their assessment would be like. And this yes. is something that we need to take, I think, into account a little bit more, and which I only found out by doing this research. I used to think that they were completely unrelated and, uh, you know, that these two things didn't talk to each other very much. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one and then um, your second reflection what areas do you think are most overlooked in mathematics education research and need a bit more attention um i think that more than an area i think it's a, a view of research um there is a little bit uh, i think that there is a little bit of a tendency to isolate um research items. Okay, so I'm looking at how students do this and then you run your study and then you do your experiment and then you look at this and then you find your things. Excellent. But actually, the student who is in front of you in the classroom and you're teaching has that thinking but also has their experiences and has their life and has their um, kind of effective reaction to mathematics. Somehow I think that research should be into learning mathematics should be a little bit more holistic than what we look at. So a student is a whole and is a whole of, uh, of the learning, the teaching, the approaches to mathematics, the things they think when they do mathematics, the emotions that they feel when they do mathematics. And this cannot be disentangled and isolated until I find this nugget that tells me that doing these tasks is uh, 25% better than doing the other task, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh, so I think that there is, we've lost a little bit in research, a bit of a holistic approach to the learning and teaching uh, situation and trying to isolate bits, which I don't know how, um, I don't know, from an educational point of view, I don't know how much they tell me about how is my student in front of me doing yeah, that's interesting. That's always the problem. That's that's very interesting. That, um, and all that remains then, Paula, is is to hand over to you for your big three. So I wonder what three either websites, blog posts, books, mm -hmm. links, whatever you want, would you recommend our listeners check out? And as always, I'll put these on the show notes page. So the the first one is this um, uh, is Ollie's, um blog post. I know you know about this <laughs> because uh, oh, but it's I, always worth always worth reminding <laughs> listeners because this is a great choice. It's it's absolutely fine. Um, it's education research reading room. Um, I as I said, I'm not uh, my my expertise is not school, so I don't really follow assiduously blogs uh, about. Um, teaching learning mathematics in school but this one i do and i think it's really really very interesting the reason why i like um this one in particular is that i think ollie has been able to give um approaches to 
um, kind of to, is being able to put together contrasting approach into what it means to be to do research in mathematics education very very well. So then when we look at his and we listen to his blog post, we can have, if you like, several aspects of the same coin. So he presents in mm -hmm. very different ways. For example, there was all, um, there was a while back there was, um, a series of um, posts about evaluation of educational interventions, and I liked it very much that he was able to present different ways of understanding and looking at this rather than just a mainstream way, if you like. So I found that very interesting. Awesome. Really good choice. Yeah, we're a big fan of uh, Ollie Lovell over here. That's brilliant. That. And what about what about choice number two? Okay, so the second one, it's uh, I just chose one of the many blogs written by mathematicians um, regarding what has happened with COVID. So um, when COVID happened, it was really very difficult to try to understand what we will do elementary things like talking to our students or teaching them or assessing them. Mm. And so a group of mathematicians came together, um, supported by the London Mathematical Society, the Royal Statistics Society and the Institute of Mathematics for US and its applications, which are the three professional bodies for mathematics, and put together um, a series of um, workshops and meetings where people could just turn up and say, I am doing this. What is everybody else doing? <laughs> yes, okay. yes. Because it can be really quite isolating to suddenly be removed from all your colleagues and your students and suddenly have to think about completely different things than the ones that you usually do. So, uh, and then some of these mathematicians have then gone on and have blogs where they talk about their experience of one of this is Kevin Houston and this is his blog, uh, which I really found uh, it's somewhere I go to and, and I look when I want to really have some ideas what people are doing. And the one big one this time was the open book exams, which we have to do. Fantastic. Superb. And, and what about choice number three? So the third one, it's... Um, um, it's a very, well, it's not a very, very big uh, thing at the moment, but it's growing quite fast. It's the work of colleagues of, of uh, previous colleagues of mine um, at the University of East Anglia. They have uh, put together four years now this um, uh, website, which is called Math Tasks, uh, where they work together with colleagues in Greece and in uh, Brazil in the design of math, of tasks for mathematics students which don't only think about uh, the, uh, as we were saying before, in isolation, oh, I want the students to be able to do this, how can they do this? But they mm. do have a bit of a more of a holistic way of what a student should be doing. So their tasks also speak to, uh, for example, not just the need of teaching mathematics, but teaching mathematics and also being able to keep your classroom engaged and interested and also to be able to deal with um, a student who wouldn't want to engage. Another part of the work is to um, try to talk to students who um, are not um, uh, what we think about as an average student. So part of the work that my colleague has done is with uh, blind and deaf students and their learning of mathematics and this is also reflected in this um, in this um, series of tasks as well. I think it's a very, it's a great um, kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a great um, initiative that is um, growing um, as we speak 
and it's again trying to think a little bit about everything. So uh, trying to think about the mathematics, but also about the engagement, also about how to keep the classroom. And and I know that they have worked with um, teachers in uh, in Norfolk um, quite a lot, and also with teachers in Brazil and in Greece to try to construct these tasks. And you can find some of these tasks on their website. So I think it's also a good resource um, website for people who have to think about tasks for the students. Fantastic. What a great selection, though, those three sounds. And so links to those, as ever, will be on the show notes. Um, well, I'll tell you what, Paola, that, that's been fascinating for me. I always like... In these, in these, particularly when I speak to to researchers, I always like research that that interests me, that I've, and surprises me, but also research that then I think, okay, actually, there's a there's a direct application for that as for a classroom teacher that's something i can try and and thinking more about these oral assessments and, and how we can make these work in a, in a low stakes way to help students possibly increase motivation increase conceptual understanding enjoy mathematics more is, is just fascinating so it's given me loads to think about so it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you paula i really really enjoyed that thank you Craig. it was lovely to be here So there you have it. There was my conversation with the wonderful Paola Ioni. Uh, what a great way to kick off season two of this Research in Action mini-series. I'm so excited to be back with these. I absolutely love doing it uh, towards the end of last year. I've, I've actually recorded all nine episodes. I did it over two pretty intense days of, of recording. So I could release them all in one go, a bit of a Netflix uh, drop to, to kind of blow everybody's podcast feed. But I think I want to just build up the tension. I try and tap into a bit of line of duty excitement. Let's build up through the through the nine episodes by doing it weekly. Uh, but I love this conversation with uh, with, with Paula. And um, my other thing I'm going to try and do in this research and action series is is cut down the length of my takeaways a little bit. Um, the main reason for this is I, t- I tend to waffle on. You may well have noticed this. Um, I'm doing it already. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm recording these on a Sunday evening. And <laughs> I've left Kate, my wife, with, with Isaac downstairs. He's running wild at the moment. He's, he's absolutely off his head. And in fact, I can hear him just... God knows what he's doing. He's making some noise I've never heard before. I can just, just hear it out of the corner of my ear here. So actually, maybe I will make this takeaway the longest I've ever done and hope he's asleep by the time I, I come back down. Uh, but just two things I wanted to focus on here. Uh, the first was, was university transition. It's interesting. Um, obviously, uh, as my, my background, my history uh, is and experiences as a secondary school maths teacher, and I've made a particular aim on this podcast to, to branch out of my experience and comfort zone. So I always love speaking to primary teachers, early years practitioners as well. And when I think of transition, that's always what I focus on, the primary to secondary transition, because that's the one that's always affected me. But it was really interesting here. I've, I've not really thought too much about that university transition. Um, and just as it's super useful, as, as we discussed in the conversation, I think to have primary teachers and secondary teachers working together, not one taking the lead and kind of trying to coach the other, but just learning from each other's experience. I really do think the same could be true for this university transition. I think it would be fascinating for university lecturers to, to sit in A-level uh, math lessons or further math lessons. But likewise, I think it would be fascinating for, uh, for teachers to sit in lectures. Because, I mean, how long ago is it? since we as teachers sat sat in a lecture. I mean, I'm giving away my age here, but I'm, God, 20 years or something like that, or not quite that bad, 19 years, something like that for, for, for me. Terrible, absolutely terrible. And um, 
Again, it's just whenever you see anybody teach, whatever the situation, and in fact, the more removed it is from from your usual practice, I think the more useful it can be because you always pick up on something. And it's an art form to 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 be able to convey information to two hundred people um, in in a, in a lecture in a lecture theatre. And it just makes me think there are things there that lecturers must be doing these days that now with my kind of teacher glasses on, I'd watch them and think, wow, okay, that's something that I could bring into a classroom where I've just got 30 people and make it even more effective. And I think this, the same could be true uh, the other way around. Now, again, as ever, it's it's time. It's the practi- practical reasons, uh, practical ways of getting this 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 working. But if there was ever an opportunity to, to do a bit of joint observation, perhaps yeah, a friend of a friend knows somebody who works in a university or maybe you've got one close by to your school, I think it's could be super useful for for all involved teachers and students Um, but the main thing of course uh, that we talked about here was oral assessments never thought to do this you know never thought never thought about it and that's what I love about these uh, these podcasts particularly whenever there's a bit of a kind of niche area of of interest that that these researchers have we can really hammer down into it and then think okay what would that look like in the classroom could we make this work and it just strikes me there's a huge benefit for for the student who would be giving these uh, these well taking I guess I should say the oral assessment or taking part in it the student uh, would be benefiting from developing their their reasoning skills communication skills great for confidence self-esteem although it's got to be managed carefully of course uh, great for classmates to, to to listen see a peer kind of taking control in the lesson uh, think how they could kind of question them critically but also respectfully I think it would really help again communication in a really positive way uh, in the classroom I think there's a huge benefit for the teacher as well in terms of really understanding students. I mean, you you can mark a GCSE paper, you can mark a homework, and you can get a feel of of, of how students understand something, uh, but nowhere near as much as if you listen to them talk for five minutes, or they talk and then you question them and they respond verbally. I think that's where you start to really get an insight into how their minds work and whether they really have grasped something. Uh, But of course, the question is, how do you make this work in school? And we've got the usual barriers. I mentioned it before with the the observations for, for university. We've got the time barrier. We're pushed as it is, particularly, again, feeling perhaps more pressure than ever this year and going into next with, with the COVID situation and so on. Perhaps we've got a really busy curriculum. So, so how do we make it work time-wise? If you've got a class of 30 and they're each doing a five-minute kind of oral assessment, and my maths tells me, I hope this is right, that's 150 minutes. That's potentially, you know, three lessons, four lessons that, that may be taken up doing this. So that's one thing, time. Uh, the other thing is um, just the the kind of practicalities of it in terms of um, who goes first uh, which student do you start with a really confident one but then does that kind of you know knock the confidence of less confident students I think you've got to be quite tactical in, in how you kind of set this up there's the prep work as well that goes into this I, I've, I've talked about this many times over the years on the podcast but I've made mistakes in the past where I say th- to, to, to students things like discuss this with your partner for two minutes and I kind of just make the assumption that kids know how to have a positive mathematical discussion. And I don't think that's true. I think students need, uh, a lot of students need support with that prompt, scaffolding and so on, almost coaching with it. And that's that's certainly true when we start thinking about doing, presenting something orally in terms of mathematics. They're probably used to it in other subjects, maybe history and English and certainly modern foreign languages doing this kind of thing. But talking about mathematics in front of the rest of their their, their peers, that seems to me quite 
quite a daunting prospect, both in terms of the, the kind of confidence of students, but also in terms of their, their capabilities. It's a completely different skill set. So you'd need a lot of teacher support. But I just wonder whether this is something that, that teachers can make a little bit more of. I certainly never did anything, anything like that. And it just feels to me, listening to Paula speaking about the benefits of that, that it just sounds like an, an interesting, not necessarily form of assessment. I'm not, I'm not thinking here assigning levels or grades or anything like that. I'm more thinking of it as a tool of learning as opposed to a tool of assessment, but with that added benefit that maybe I start to get some extra insights into, into how my students really think. But that is one of those things I'm going to, going to, you know, take the easy way out here and kind of pass it over to you. If, if this is something that you think sounds like could be could be interesting and beneficial and sounds like something that you could make work perhaps with a certain class a certain group of students then maybe it's worth giving it a go because it sounds like there are a hell of a lot of benefits to this and again it's it could be something done with younger students and it could certainly prepare them for, for further studies and, and the rest of their their careers going forward anyway uh, time for me to shut up time for me to remember that I've got to be a parent uh, myself and go downstairs and help out so uh, just to say thank you for tuning in uh, thank you for the, uh, the, the for Paola and also the colleagues at Loughborough University have given up their time to speak to me and for, uh, for Colin Foster for helping me uh, put this series together as ever and to Art Maths for sponsoring it and, and uh, making this happen it means that uh, my wife doesn't mind quite so much that I'm getting, giving up uh, hours and hours putting these things together if we know we've got a, a bit of sponsorship and support coming in so that makes all the difference and of course thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping on tuning into these uh, honestly it's going to be a great series this I'm so excited to share it with you but for now you'll be pleased to know I'm going to shut up so you take care and bye for now